Coach Conzo Martin has been the definition of strength, leadership, and success. Over his course as a head coach at Missouri State, Tennessee, Cal, and now Missouri. I've enjoyed watching his journey so much so that I've included a couple of my favorite interview clips to start this interview here. I'm extremely blessed and honored to be able to share Coach Martin's story with you. Um, it was a dream of mine when I started the Brantley Method that one day I would be able to interview Power Five head coaches and men like Coach Conzo Martin. So this is a special moment for me, uh, a special moment for the Brantley Method. And hopefully within this interview, you find something that makes it a special moment for you as well. So without further ado, I provide you motivation, education, and inspiration from Coach Conzo Martin. Are you willing to make the decision to succeed? That's the first question. Are you willing to make the decision to succeed? Everybody talk about it. We're about to find out. A couple of things I'll talk about, guys, just not necessarily basketball things, just life things, because uh, the basketball part will take care of itself. We'll spend a lot of time doing that, guys. You have everything you need here to be a successful student athlete. There are no excuses. Be responsible and accountable to do your job. Responsible and accountable to do your job. And I know you guys probably heard this a lot. Do you have the courage to raise your expectations? Most people like to stay here or stay down because they're afraid of failure and disappointment. Everybody can handle increase. Everybody can handle increase. Anybody know what I'm about to say next? How many can handle decrease? When they do this, it's gonna be packed house November 10th. The ref said, when they do that, it's gonna be five guys on the wood. And if it's tight, it's gonna be five guys on the wood. I will challenge you and I'll push you, but I'll never disrespect you. Last thing, gentlemen, because it's a beautiful day to be alive. Happy to have you guys on board. You'll win games, you'll lose games, and uh, sometimes losses bring me to my knees where I don't want to get out of bed, but at the end of the day, I have to do what I do before my do what I do for my family and for these guys to show them this is what a man looks like. And that's what it, that's all that matters to me. Yeah, I want to win every game, but, but if I can give them something important to their lives and help them understand this is the truth. It might sting you a little bit, but this is the truth. But we can get to this point if we do these things. Because if you're not teaching them life lessons, what are you really teaching them? You're wasting their time. Eventually, there'll be somebody's father. There'll be somebody's husband. They'll run a company one day. So if they're not learning those lessons now, now I, I didn't do a good job in teaching. I'm excited. Like I, like I told you when we talked the other day, um, I'm so excited to talk to you. Uh, just as I see it and as I've seen it and as I've watched your career, um, uh, a strong leader uh, of not only your, your team, um, but a leader within the industry, a leader within this fraternity of, uh, of all coaches, but most more specifically, um, black coaches, um, somebody that we can look up to, somebody that we can uh, you know, look at as, a, as an example of you know, just strength, an example of um, consistency, an example of integrity. So, you know, without a doubt, this is uh, something I've been looking forward to all week since we talked last week and excited to talk to you. Oh, thank you, man. I'm looking forward to it, man. Just, again, take your time. We're not in a rush. It's all good. I, could, I, I give you the same respect that I would give Barack Obama. So just take your time. We go from there. <laughs> 
who is Conzo Martin? Who is uh, who is the man beyond the the coaching record, beyond the coaching tree, beyond the the different you know stops within this journey that God's placed in your life? You know, who is that man? It's a good. One. I just think uh, for me, for, for for whatever reason, though I'm 49 years old and grateful to be 49, if it, it, somewhere it feels like I'm still that that little guy in, from East St. Louis, man. It just uh, God has God has gave me a torch to carry or to bear, whichever one you want to use. And uh, my journey has been a, a, a bumpy road, and I say it in a great way. It's a beautiful thing for me. And just all the life lessons, the things that I've been through in my life. But 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 more importantly, as I've grown as, as I like to think a man of character, a man of integrity, which for me both of those words go hand in hand. A man with a tremendous amount of respect for just living life itself. And I don't take that for granted. Uh, a man that is grateful to have a family. God bless me with a family. My, my mom is still on this earth, my father's still on this earth, so I still have family members on this earth, but grateful to have a wife, three children. Because that wasn't owed to me, and I appreciate the opportunity to, to be the man of the household, to be able to provide for my family. So all those things are a big deal to me. So, again, just a man that's uh, embracing every opportunity, but understand that there will be bumps in the road. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And you alluded to um, being a man from East St. Louis. And, you know, I really didn't understand um, what that meant until I I played football at University of Illinois. And some of my teammates were from East St. Louis. And we would sit down and we would have talks. and, you know, I say, oh, I'm from Detroit. And they say, oh, you're from Detroit. Oh, I'm from East St. Louis. And, and it, it didn't dawn on me um, until, you know, later on in my life or, or during some of those conversations. But later on, you start to do research and you start to, to see kind of the, the socioeconomic um background of, of certain places. Um, and East St. Louis, you know, in, in the 80s and 90s, when you were coming up, although it was a small city, uh, you know, it had some, some big city challenges. So talk to me a little bit about overcoming, uh, you know, some of, you know, they always say dream beyond your surroundings, right? So overcoming the external environment and all the things that were happening around you um, and, and utilizing the lessons and the things you learned there. How does that, how has that influenced you as a man, um, as a father, as a coach? Talk to me about how those beginnings formulated who you are today. Well, it's funny you say, use the word dream because my mom used to always say dream big and she would, she would take us to these, uh, these homes in St. Louis cause we never had a car. So we would always have to ride the bus. So she would take us to these home shows in St. Louis when we were younger. And outside of St. Louis, more Clayton would do certain areas, but I'll say St. Louis. And uh, we would go to these home shows and we'd lay in the bed like that was our home. And it was a great feeling just to be a part of it. And she would always say, dream big. Don't give up, you know, chase your dreams. And when you're that young, you don't really understand that you dream like you're praying to God. So those are your dreams and good times and all that. So, and for me, it was never about dreaming to be a professional player and all that. It was just finding a way if, if, as I got older, making my mom's life better. But I, but I think we oftentimes when you're in those environments and and uh, like I say to my wife jokingly, but seriously, I want I want everybody to know when God lays me to rest that somewhere on that I'm from East St. Louis on my tombstone. I want people to know that that means a lot to me. But you know, uh, you 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 hear so many times you hear the sayings and often in, in, in those low socioeconomic communities. 
it's hard to attack and move forward when what's behind you is left you so depleted. Mm. And it's just like, like the next day is, is, is an obstacle within itself because there's so many things. It's just, you know, you struggle to make ends meet. You're making sure your children stay out of harm's way because my mom had, you know, two boys and two girls, making sure they stay out of harm's way, uh, uh, staying away from this when you got young teenage daughters, beautiful daughters, and all of a sudden staying away from older guys. All this stuff goes on when, when as a parent, you, you, you're working a job early in the morning, you're working at light, night trying to make ends meet. And it just, uh, that's what prayers, whether, whether you believe in a God or think there's a God or not, that's what prayers come into play. And that's what my mom did a lot of praying at the time. And again, we, we pray because we always pray just to survive. And, uh, and that was simply it, man. But, but again, my age and growing up in East St. Louis is the best place in the world. I only realized there were situations that were tough when I removed myself. When I got older and went to college and I out of college, and I said, man, something's not right. You know, so you really start to understand it then. But because East St. Louis is 100% black. Yeah, and that's all love. I mean, you, you you might have a few have a little bit more than others, but it's all family. It's all good. It's all a great step and a great time. But when you get older, you get away from it. You realize uh, we were we were at a disadvantage in a lot of ways. But it didn't stop the perseverance and the character and the growth of, of a community, because again, that old saying, "It takes a village to raise a family." That's what it simply was. Uh, when you live in living in those project housing, everybody raised your child. If you're down the street, you got in trouble. You're paying for it down the street, and you're paying for it when you get home. So it just, and that's what it was. And, it, and again, but it was all family. It was, it was nothing like it. And uh, I, w- I will never uh, take away or replace those moments in my life because I think they're part of what made me, make me who I am today. Absolutely, absolutely, and you know they they always say um, there's nothing like a praying mama, a, a praying grandma. Um, there's nothing like that that village mentality. Um, and, and as much as I hated it growing up in Detroit, um, I hated knowing that whatever I did around the corner, you know, my mom was going to know about it before I got home. Um, but you know, I look back on it now, being a father. You know, that's one of the things that I miss the most is, you know, it it feels like we don't have the same senses of community, the same senses of, you know, we weren't getting away with anything, right? And, you know, there wasn't... um, you know, nowadays it's almost as if, uh, and I say it all the time when I'm coaching and dealing with young men, uh, I, I tell, you know, I have coaches who will say to me, Justin, you know, it's hard to discipline or it's hard to, you know, I had this conversation last year, I had a coach tell me, Justin, it's hard to, di-. and I said, look, I said, to me, it's about the consistent discipline because these young men are, are yearning for it because they're not getting it. And initially, yes, they're going to, you know, initially they're, they're, they're going to resist, right? Um, but the thing that I, I always say is some of the ones that, that are in the, mo- in the need of the most love from us show us in the most unloving ways. And, you know, I think that that's one of the things in the inner city that's missing the most right now is that community. Like, y- y- you'd be hard-pressed to show me a community where, you know, the, the grandma down, down the street can spank the young man because he's doing something wrong. It, it's, it's just not happening in 2020, right? So, so that's a big difference. Um, and it sounds like, you know, that 
that experience gave you a, a different level of appreciation, a different level of uh, understanding uh, of who you are, but more importantly, whose you are, you know, who you belong to, um, and that, you know, you, you represent, you know, first and foremost, our father, um, you know, but you represent your family, you represent your, your neighborhood, you represent your, your community. Uh, there's, there's a lot of expectations that comes with, with that. Um, and you went on, you had an, uh, an amazing college career, leaving from East St. Louis. You know, I, I look at it, um, I, I've done lots of research. I looked at, you know, the success that you guys had on the floor. Um, and, and from that, you know, from the success at Purdue and, and what you did there, you, you took that and you turned pro, right? Um, and I'm not glancing over the basketball success. Um, I think that that's, everybody knows that, right? That's something that's talked about a lot, but I wanted to get to a point that I've touched on with a lot of young men over the last couple days is, eventually the air's coming out the ball. The game's gonna end. For 99% for of us, it's ending well before we're prepared for it to end, right? Um, and a lot of times we don't have a parachute to catch us on that fall. Right, like it's it's coming quick, it's coming fast. We 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 didn't pack a shoot because we weren't prepared. Um, for you, you're playing overseas. You're playing in Italy. Uh, the year is 1997. You came home and were diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. If you don't mind, talk to me a little bit about a that battle, right? And, and essentially facing two battles, because you're finding out you have cancer, but you're also finding out that the game you love, that you've been playing forever, now is the least important thing for you to be concerned with. Um, and, and then secondly, you know, winning that battle and what that has done for your life, your career, uh, just your, your entire well-being. Well, um, when I was diagnosed with non-Hoskins lymphoma, which is a form of cancer, and, even, and, I, and you know, you're talking about 20 plus years and now I'm able to say the word cancer comfortably. You know, I've always struggled with saying the word, but you know, I was playing professional basketball in Avellino, Italy and, and long story short and, and how we kind of found out I was, we had a practice. I was, I was sprinting up and down the court from the baseline and I was breathing like this and I just passed out at half court. And they took me back into the training room and they did the trainer. He couldn't speak in English, but what he was trying to say used to be big, but now you're small. And so throughout that, the rest of that day, I went to the hospital, maybe spent a couple hours in the hospital, tests, x-rays, blood work, and all that. And later that night, the owner of the team, whose wife was, she was Italian, but she was from New York, so she could speak fluent English. So she was just translating for him, saying, you need to get back to the States immediately. Um, and my wife had just came, my wife had been over maybe about three weeks to a month, and my son, Joshua, was four months old at the time. So we flew back to the States from from Rome, New York, New York to Indianapolis. And we get back to Indianapolis, uh, we get into our, our house and I had my son Joshua and walked through the couch, walked through the house and I just kind of dropped him on the couch. I didn't drop him aggressively, but I had enough to, strength to drop him on the couch. And my wife was kind of getting in the bags and then um, my wife came out of the room and I was just leaning on the couch and just said, we need to get to the hospital right away. Um, and, this, and again, it's been so many years, so the timeline is anywhere between 1.30 and all of this happening to 3.30 in the morning. So we go to the hospital, and they did, again, tests, x-rays, and blood work. And what they found, they found a tumor about the size of a baseball between my chest and lung area. 
and uh, I don't I don't remember the doctor's face that was on call that night, but I do remember vividly him saying, "I don't know if you're going to die, but this is life threatening." And as I was sitting in the chair, and he was standing in front of me, and my wife and my son Joshua was sitting in a chair right across from me, and I, I glanced at my wife real quick, and I looked away because I knew about it had contact with her for more than three or four seconds, I would have broke down. Again, not, not afraid to break down, but I wanted to be strong for some reason for her. And, uh, and that night, they were hopeful, the next day or two, they were hopeful that it was tuberculosis. So they put me in a room uh, with my family, couldn't, it was really my son and my wife, they couldn't be in a room with me because they were hopeful that it, it was tuberculosis. And after tests and x-rays, they found out it was cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And, uh, you know, really at that point, I could care less about the game of basketball because in the process, because I had four knee surgeries, two of them before I even stepped on the college campus, I always prayed to God when the game is over for me, let it be over. I, I wanted to be done. I never want to pick up a ball again. So I was okay with that part. The tough part was wanting to be on this earth uh, uh, to, because again, I, newly married, uh, a year, maybe two years in marriage. And then my son, Josh was four months old. So my prayers were simple to God outside of, a lot of other things, uh, for the most part, I just said, God, allow me to see Joshua turn 18. That, that, was, that was my prayer. And I prayed to him like he's my father. So I don't necessarily say God, I and mean, that's his name. But I prayed to him like he's my father. Just to see Joshua turn 18 and whatever happens after that happens. And I didn't say that like some tough guy. I was saying it just, you, you gave him to me. You, 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 you blessed me to have him. Then at least let me do that. Because, again, on the flip side of this, and I was thinking in terms of this, too, in so many years, that is a young black kid and again I, my wife was a beautiful person so she would have found somebody else I mean I understand that whether I like that or not but it just I, I needed him to if if there was another man to show him the way of what it looks like to be a man as he continued to grow as a young black kid and he grew in this space in life show what it looks like and uh so so my prayers are just to help him through that and just 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 a legacy not that I use the word legacy all the time but just to show him what it looked like because he had my bloodlines and I like to use that word a lot because it means a lot to me and uh that was it just to let see him turn 18 he's 23 years old right now so I'm ahead of the game as far as life's concerned and not that not to say I'm ready to go but just uh you know in, in the midst of all that my wife and I we talk about it Dr. Andy Greenspan did a great job and one thing he asked my wife and I in the process, he said, um, again, he said, I think at the time, chances of survival at that time were probably 60 plus percent, which wasn't bad. But he said, would you guys like to, uh, and I don't want to be graphic on here, kids are watching, would you like to uh, store sperm, you know, just in case after chemotherapy, I can't, we can't have kids again, uh, but we'd have the sperm to, uh, to, to induce with the eggs, forgive me for my terms and all that, but, I, and then, um, and I just kind of looked at my wife and, and in my, my mind, I just said, no, because if I'm not, if I'm not on this earth, I don't, I don't want to put that on her to have, to have to do. I just said, no, but by the grace of God, we end up having two more kids. I have a son that's 18. I have a daughter that's 13. So, so it's been a blessing, man, but it was, uh, you know, going through chemotherapy for about four and a half months was a real fight a real fight because it's, it was the first time in my life I had no control over the situation. It was just simply to Dr. Greenspan, whatever, whatever medicines you think it are, whatever it is, that's fine because it, it didn't matter to me what the name of the medicine was because again, if I'm not on this earth, it doesn't matter anyway. Do what you have to do to, to make it work. And that was it for me. Just my life was in your hands. Right. Right. So, um, 
it sounds like, you know, again, your, your upbringing and your being rooted in faith allowed you to, um, number one, be able to pray your way through that situation and be able to communicate with God and ask, you know, ask for what you, you, you were looking for um, and, and ask. And, and, you know, and it wasn't a selfish prayer, right? It was, oh, I want to raise and uplift this young man and make sure that, you know, he has the, the proper upbringing. He has the, the proper guidance and leadership. Um, and that aligns with, you know, the, the mission, the calling of being a coach. Uh, so when, when you, you got through chemotherapy, um, the cancer went into remission, at what point did you know the next phase was coaching or the next, the next journey for you uh, was gonna be the coaching side? Because, you know, you said, you said, hey, when it's over with, I don't want to pick up another ball, right? And for a lot of us, it's it's even more difficult being around the game, but not being able to to impact it physically. So, talk to me a little bit about understanding. Okay, coaching is my calling, and making that step. It came down to you know, Coach Katie, who's my college coach, is a wonderful man. He called me, and he said he had an opportunity for me uh, to be on his staff, but it, it would be a year later. And uh, I had to go back and finish school because when I was in college, I never went to summer school because I always worked a job because I felt like I could make more money working and send money home as opposed to going to summer school. So I never went to summer school at all. I tried it my freshman year. After a week or so, I dropped the class. because I, I just could, I had to be on the move trying to work again just to, to continue to help provide for the family at home. So when Coach Katie called me with the opportunity, I just felt like it was a tremendous one. But it, but. It was never a goal of mine to be in the coaching. Coach, and I say this respectfully, coach says it all the time that I was probably the best leader he ever had in, in, in his career of coaching. Uh, and whatever that means, you can ask in detail what it means from him. But just I felt like I was a guy that took a tremendous amount of pride in team, family, valuing if you had a best player. Because I always said I was a great role player. I never felt like I was a star player. I felt like I was a great role player. And uh, I didn't care who got the, the accolades, the stats. All I cared about was winning and being successful in the locker room. Even at halftime, that's a game to me. The game is, if we're in a half, we're down, that's a problem. Let's correct this. And, and all that meant something to me because it was my life and I poured into it. And so when, when Coach came called me at that opportunity, I talked with my wife and I just felt like that was it. So I went back to finish school and I got on Coach's staff. And um, I, I, I can safely say it took me about three years, three years to understand what it meant to be a college coach and it's not it's not a cakewalk it's not as if you can recruit a top player and say okay i played the game before this and that that doesn't matter i didn't understand early in the process there's so many underlying factors and stuff that goes on behind the scenes it doesn't matter how hard you work sometimes things just don't work out so just really learning building relationships and recruiting and, and i've all and i'm grateful that i never talked about me as a player trying to get a recruit. I, I, try, I try to work myself and build relationships, genuine relationships, whether you like to hear what I said or not. And I wasn't a good uh, storyteller, a guy that just can tell fibs just to get a prospect. That was never my nature. I try to be honest and transparent, but also, you know, be real and raw, but have fun in the process. But I never want a young man or his family come back and say, well, you said this, said that just to get him. That, that, that wasn't good to me because it, and when I started recruiting, I always felt like, when I was that kid and, and what was said to my mom, and I'll never forget Coach Katie uh, and, and my mom, she, and we talk to this day, my mom's a beautiful woman, but she, sometimes she was afraid to ask questions because she felt like it was a dumb question. You know, uh, you know like for example, 
you, you go on and say, okay, as a coach, you're talking, you say, our AD. What is AD? I mean, you, so most people don't know that's athletic director or, or, or syllabus. No, not many people know that. So you, you always want to speak to the level, not, not that you teaching down to the class, but speak to the level, be respectful when you're speaking to people if they don't understand certain things, not that you're better than them. So I'm always conscious of that. I want to be, I want to, be able to listen, but also want to be clear in what I'm saying. You don't need to be the most eloquent speaker to get your point across. You got to have compassion for people. So just saw stories that my mom said, even my sister's in the process of sitting in a room and hearing coaches talk years ago, stuff that they talk about to this day. It means a lot to me because you can't take small things for granted and you can't uh, undermine or underestimate a person because of their education or lack thereof. You assume certain things about them. There's still people that have hearts, they have compassion, they have faith, they believe in certain things. You treat them with the same level of respect. So I don't take those things for granted at all. But it's just, I'm grateful to be in this seat. It's not an easy seat because you're dealing with so many moving parts, so many different young minds, not only the 13 players, scholarship players, but your walk-on players, as well as their families. There's so much that goes into that and trying to make it become one, but still be real, raw, and authentic. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You talked about uh, you talked about a couple things there that stood out to me. But one of the things, the last thing you said, you talked about being in that seat, um, and you know it's not an easy seat to be in. But you know you have found success in that seat, even though at times the color of that seat's changed a couple times, right? Um, so you know your 12 seasons as a head coach, um, you've been at four different schools and, and four different conferences, and you have winning records at each of those. So how have you been able to to build that culture that translates and transfers regardless of you know what seat it is uh, regardless of you know what city that seat is is set in um, and, and regardless of the yearly roster changes the recruits whatever the case may be um, how have you been able to consistently have that success o- over that 12 seasons as a head coach what I've tried to do and understanding out of a tremendous amount of respect for my staff and the people that are around, around me, including my players, I understand that shared power is the best power. We're better if we share the power. I've never been a guy that moves in such where people say, oh, that's the head coach because of how I'm moving. You know, uh, I mean, you, you, you demand respect by your character, your accountability, all those things. But I've never tried to be a guy that walk with my chest sticking out because I, as, as I, I, I continue to amass uh, success, surface success, so to speak. I pray for more humility. I, I, I continue to pray for more humility. As as the as you climb the ladder, I pray for more of that because I don't want to lose sight of that because I know why I'm sitting here. I know though somebody hired me, I know who put me in this seat, and I don't take that for granted. And I truly believe there's a guy, so I don't I don't lose sight of that part. But it's my commitment and understanding that. There will be a tremendous amount of bumps in the road as you navigate, especially when you operate with integrity in our profession. Yep. You can't lose your fight, your tenacity, and your grit to do the right things because your character will be compromised. And I say it to our players all the time. I've said it to my sons growing up. Your character is tested when it comes to drugs and alcohol, power, sex, and money. Because everybody has character until it is tested. <laughs> then it's revealed. So, again, my character's been tested through this test of time, and I continue to stay strong. 
Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And, you know, you alluded to it earlier. Um, you alluded to Coach Katie, um, you know, giving you that opportunity, but also kind of, you know, challenging you um, to, to take a path that, you know, wasn't one in which you originally set out, hey, I want to be a coach. Um, and, and Coach Katie has a, a track record of not only success, on the floor success within his own programs, um, his coaching tree has been fruitful. You know, you, you have yourself, you know, Bruce, Bruce Weber, Steve Lavin, Kevin Stallings, Matt Painter, Link Darner. Tell me a little bit about the impact that Coach Katie's had on your life and your career, um, and, and what is so special about Coach Katie that you know the, the men leaving from him are such strong leaders and they've gone on to be as successful as they have been. There's a lot of things. Of course, of course, Coach was a great coach, so that part is understood. I don't necessarily have to talk about the ball part. He was a great teacher and a great coach. Two things that Coach said to me in a nutshell in the recruiting process, uh, and it said to me in my home, my mom was there, uh, if he goes to class every day, he'll get a degree. If he work hard, he will play. He didn't say if he work hard, he will start. He said if he work hard, he will play. And Coach stood true to that, even with guys that were walk-ons. If you worked extremely hard as a walk-on, Coach found a way to play you. Now, again, that's – some would say, man, that's not a very good sales pitch, you know. But for me, coming from East St. Louis, in my environment, between my high school coach, my elementary and middle school coaches, and the men that helped raise me, that was music to my ears because that was toughness, that was grit, and that was an opportunity. And we never grew up with somebody promised you and a lot of pats on the backs and a lot of favors. It was hard work. It was a hard grind. So that part was understood. So now everybody around me said, yeah, that's a good place to go to because, again, you have to earn it. You have to work for it. So listen to what Coach is saying. And, 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 I, and I never forget, I struggled. I struggled as a freshman, especially those first, you know, 12 to 15 preseason games. And, um, I, you know, I had buddies – Oh, man, you're not playing, you're not playing, all that stuff. They would laugh and joke about it, but it was never talks. So you need the transfer. That was never even the, the conversation. And then the, the final straw for me where it turned around, we were playing at Illinois, which a lot of people thought that's why we're going to school out of high school. We were playing there. And um, I played 45 seconds. This is my freshman year. I played either 45 seconds or a minute and 15, somewhere around there in the whole game. And that was a tough thing to deal with. And, and after that game, my mom, she had those Hallmark cards, and she gave Coach Katie one. She gave the assistant coach one. She gave those guys hugs as an assistant. Then when it came to me, she just, you know, gave me a hug and a kiss, and she, she just said, um, you know, are you reading your Bible? You know, and, uh, and I don't think I was reading at the level I, she wanted me to read at, but, I mean, I, I think I said yes. And it just – but, again, what that said to me at that age, no excuse. We got to keep fighting because, again, she did her part. My son is in somebody's college. You'll take out a ballpark. You'll get that. You're in somebody's college. Make sure you don't lose sight of these things, getting your degree, being successful, and all those things. But the ballpark, you'll take care of that. You got that. And it was, it was simply fight. So after that, say, say that game was Tuesday, Wednesday, Saturday, I can't remember. So that next week or so, I went into Coach Katie's office and just said, Coach, how do I get on the floor and play? And the, the crazy thing about it, the reasons he gave me to get on the floor and play, he was saying it from day one. I just wasn't listening. I had in my mind how I thought the game should be played. And that's what happened with a lot of young guys. They have in their mind, this is my game, this is my style and all that, so this is how I play. But once I embraced and absorbed what he said, I got in the starting lineup and I never looked back until I left the school because I understood what he wanted as a coach. I think too many times young guys go into a program and they – 
want the program to fit what they're doing. And it's a trade-off because you want you recruit a young man, you want to work for him. But what I try to tell a lot of young guys early, it's going to be hard for you, not because you lack talent, because it's different, because it's new. Even that walk-on is just as strong as you are as a freshman. That's an adjustment period. And once you make that adjustment and understand and listen and hear, you'll be okay. But I think so many of our young men struggle because they've had so many pats on the back and it's hard to understand what's real and what's love and what's authentic. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you and I spoke about that a little bit, um, you know, with dealing with, I mean, at the level that you're at, you're recruiting players that a lot of them have never been told they're wrong, right? A lot of them um, have been told what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. And, you know, that's why it's important to find the right fit and find the right player to fit your system and the right, the right player to fit your coaching and and your culture. Um, and, and, you know, obviously that's a big piece of, you know, like, like I said, I mean, between you, Coach Mann, um, that culture of authenticity and that culture of communication and that culture of, hey, I'm going to tell you, you know, you might not like what I have to say, but I'm going to tell you the truth. And I'm going to tell you, you know, what you need to know, not what you want to know. Um, and I think that that's important for young men, but especially important for young black men to understand that, you know, we, we can't, we're doing them a disservice if we're giving them outs along the way or we're telling them to transfer or we're telling them, you know, uh, it, you know all the great things that they want to hear versus all the things they need to hear. So it's great to hear that you had those kind of influences um, and those kind of people around you, uh, starting with your mother, but then leading on to Coach Katie as you were playing for him. Talk to me a little bit about the, the influences that you had, you know, as a coach that kind of were able to give you that. And, and, I, and I've referenced th- uh, that by saying this, you know, I've looked at for the last two years, um, and, and actually I'll go back another, in the last three years, when I, when I first stepped foot at Spire, um, I started to do research on guys that came before me, um, and you know, as a, as a director, it was a little bit different, but I looked at the great coaches because ultimately that's, you know, you were, not only are we coaching players in, in the administrative role, you know, we're coaching coaches, right? And we've got to make sure that all the pieces align and come back to where they belong at. Um, and I saw guys like Kevin Sutton who had done a, a phenomenal job at um, w- when he was at Mount Verde, right? I, d- I did research on, you know, Coach John Thompson, Coach Chaney, uh, George Raveling, you know, Tubby Smith and Nolan Richardson, you know, Clarence Gaines and Wade Houston, guys that you don't hear enough about, right? Like guys that people don't really talk too much about Clarence Gaines. They, they, don't, they don't know what Clarence did and, and, and what he accomplished. And, and it's even more valuable when you think about the time that him and Wade Houston accomplished the, the things that they accomplished. So I did that research um, and, and found so much joy in taking pride in the details and being the very best version of myself. So for you, how important was the legacies of, of strong black men that sat in seats like yours um, at their universities? How important was that for your journey and the advancement of you? It's, it's so huge because those are guys that with the few TV channels that we had growing up, those are guys that we followed. And even you said Wade Houston. I had an opportunity to coach at Tennessee where he coached. And he obviously, one of his sons was the best college players ever, Allen Houston, to play in the SEC, uh, but also a wonderful person. I had a chance to sit down with Wade Houston, a wonderful man, a very successful businessman. Uh, coached in a tough environment there. And, just, and he grew up in that area. You know, just 
I'll read you some and I'll continue to talk about that. The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I be afraid? That's Psalms 27.1. When I go back and I study our history as, as, as black men, women, people, and just some of the things, uh, and I don't, I don't need to go back to the 1600, 17, 18, just even in Martin Luther King. And I've said this story before when he was in that Montgomery bus boycott uh, coming from Atlanta. And just his, his house was bombed and his daughter was four months old, if I'm not mistaken. His first child, she was four months old. And he ended up having three other kids after her. He could have gave up in the fight after that first bombing. He stayed the course till his last speech in Memphis, Tennessee. The things that Malcolm X went through, he stayed true uh, to the ministry till the end. He was committed to it. So who am I uh, not to respect the guys that came before me, to work as hard as I can work and not just cons get consumed with just winning games or looking flashy with a nice suit, you got a nice car and all those things. What, what does that really mean? You had guys that came before you because if I'm not helping the guys that came from coming behind me, then who am I? I mean, just my commitment to the guys behind me, I got to work exhausting hours, but I don't need to talk about it. I don't need to look like, I just need to do it so they can have opportunities to be successful. And I also have to fight the fight that some unwilling to fight. I have to be strong and stand in it. And though my knees may buckle, I have to stay strong and continue to fight the fight. I mean, can you imagine, I, I just think about, I mean, two of the most powerful men in the world that, to, to ever walk the earth between Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Can you imagine knowing your days are numbered? Can you, I mean, just to feel it in your soul and continue to get up and keep going. Yeah. I'm not that strong yet. I mean, I, and, 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 I, and I love the Lord. I'm not that strong yet. But that is a powerful, powerful place to be and to continue to push forward. Uh, so for me, it just, for every young black coach that's behind me, I have to do everything in my power to stand strong, to have a tremendous amount of integrity, character, respect, humility, but also muscle. Because we can't lose sight of just because I'm humble doesn't mean I'm soft. Now, let's not get it twisted. Yeah. So I want to be clear of that. And just to never give up because so many powerful people came before us and they had, they had to knock down a lot of bullets. Yeah. I mean, they, 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 had to, they, they went to work with boxing gloves on. Yeah. And I have to stay true and I have to be strong. And, 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 and again, though my knees may get weak here and there, I got to stay committed and I got to keep walking with perseverance and strength. You hit the nail right on the head, right? Um, those that came before us, you know, they, they walked so that we can run. Um, and, and here you are setting the table uh, for that next generation. So, you know, when you look around the country and, and you see that in our profession, um, there's a fraction of, of us sharing that top seat. Um, what are some things that we can do? And when I say we, I mean a collective we, uh, from whether it be educating our, our youth um, at an early age that the opportunities exist and, and preparing them to step in to, to the university, taking summer school or you know talking to them about coaching development and things like that early on in their careers. What are some things that we can do to change the landscape uh, so that opportunities 
they're not necessarily we, we, we don't you know we're not looking at it like the Rooney rule in the NFL where you know guys are getting interviews just because it looks good or they're getting interviews just because it's mandated um, but how can we um, continue to and I think there's an amazing talent pool now there's some amazing assistant coaches you know um, I, I, I talked to coach Anthony Solomon uh, on the regular and I think that you know he's one of the most brilliant minds not only as as a coach but just just um, understanding interpersonal communication and skills and understanding how to be a leader and how to be a strong man, but not to, to downplay the talent pool that exists, but how can we raise the, the bar within the talent pool, whether it be education at an early level on the X's and O's or building game plans. What is it that's needed more so that nobody else can sit there and say, oh, he's just a recruiter or you know, his, his, his sum, the sum of his worth is his ability to go get players. How can we shift that narrative? Well, we've already shifted that. It's just the, the thing that we can't do. We can't believe that from the standpoint he got to improve his X's and O's. Or how, how, how have you hired any assistant coach to become a head coach? How did you know he knew X's and O's? Right. Well, you hired them based off the program. So I, I've never believed that part. I think what we have to do is you, you have just as many black qualified coaches as you do white. And I hate using those words like that. But you have just as many qualified. The key is the, the people that are in the hiring positions. Until black men and women get in position to hire someone, you won't really see change. That's the biggest key. It's not that guys aren't qualified to do the job. Yeah, they can do the job, but I need someone to hire me. And, and with that being said, that doesn't mean every person that's not black is racist. That, that, that doesn't mean that. In most cases, they hire who they're comfortable with. That's what that means. So now, what I try to explain to a lot of different people, if you want to get into coaching, so if you got a staff, I mean, you got players on your roster, and say, let's, let's say two of them will be pros, or 11 won't. Well, how about pushing three of those guys in administrative roles? And then you look up 20 years later, the hiring practices will have changed because of people of color in position to do hiring. And you like to think when people of color in position to hire, they'll hire a qualified person regardless of how they look. It could be male or female, they're qualified. Yeah. I think that's what we lose sight of. We, we have all these boxes when somebody's trying to apply for a job. It's, it should just say qualified, yes or no. It shouldn't say male, female, what color you are. Are you qualified for the job? So I think that is the biggest key. We have to be in positions to make decisions. And so now with that being said, when you're talking about from an administrative standpoint, when you look around the college campuses all around the country, how many people, how many positions, black men and women are in position on administrative roles, whether they're the athletic director or in those positions, look around the country. How many are in positions where they're the curators or on the committees to make decisions? How many black men and women are in position to be deans of students? How many black men and women are chancellors and presidents? That's it. Until we get in positions to make decisions, we will still be where we are, no matter how hard you work. So lose that thought of working hard and next and okay, take that out. We've been triggered. Don't, don't buy that. Don't buy that. When you label me as a recruiter, I'm okay with that if I'm able to get the job and get in the door. It doesn't matter what you label me. I got to do the job. Now, if you label me that and I become that and I don't study my craft, then that's on me. Yeah. You still got to study your craft. That's, that's your skill level. 
And I think those are the things that we have to understand. Yeah, you can watch, man, there's so many, you can watch games on YouTube. You can pick anything up on YouTube. So I don't believe in the X and O's part. And again, you have some guys that are exceptional defensive-minded guys, offensive-minded guys, but that's all walks of life. That's not a color. But it's just you making the commitment to do and be whatever it is you want to be. And I think that is the most important thing. But, again, I go back to the fact that until we're in positions to make decisions, it will continue to be a bumpy road. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that you, you know, what you just said is so profound. Um, you know, when we have those guys that have a passion for the game and a passion for sports, um, but they're, they're not that, that future, you know, professional, you know, it doesn't matter what sport, whether it be football, basketball, baseball, et cetera. Um, and encouraging them to take a path, uh, that a lot just aren't talking about, right. Or a lot aren't, you know, preparing themselves for that path. You know, it's, it, they may be looking at it as a second thought or an afterthought or an after afterthought. Uh, that they, they'll get into coaching, right? But you don't hear too many guys say, hey, when this is over, I want to get into administration. Um, so, so being able to, to start that conversation, I think that that's key. Uh, I think that that's huge. I want to I want to touch on something. I want to close with something that you started on. You started earlier. You say you don't use the word legacy often, right? You, um, but you understand that you know you in that seat. You you hold a great a great responsibility, um, a great responsibility to that next generation. And you, you hold a great responsibility uh, to those that follow behind you. Uh, talk to me a little bit about, you know, the legacy that you're building and you're looking to leave when it's all said and done, when you're done coaching, when you step out of that seat for the last time, you know, how do you want to be remembered? How do you want people to speak about Coach Conzo Martin and his existence, his uh, life, and his leadership. I'll, I'll read this to you, and then I'll answer that as best I can. Sometimes when you get to a destination of what God promised you, it doesn't feel like a celebration because of what it costs to get there. Uh, you know, man, it's just, uh, this is, a, this is a, what I call a street fight, you know, until the end. And... Um, I just continue to pray to God to give me the strength to be strong because doing so many things, trying to help so many people with humility. And I just, I just want to be, for me, if I can be the best father, well, first, the best husband, the best father, the best, and I say this respectfully, preacher and teacher and educator I can be, I think I've done my job. I've never been a guy to walk around boasting, bragging about those sorts of things because I also know that all this can be taken away from me. I know that. I understand it, but I also know there's a world I'm trying to, I'm, I'm fighting for eternal living. And, and what I pray for, not, not so much as me, because uh, for years, I, I just I always pray for years until maybe about 12 years ago, the, the same prayers I grew up hearing my mom praying, we want to pray for pray to get food on the table, pray to, you know, pay our rent, all those things. We always prayed that. So about 12, 13 years ago, I just prayed to God. I said, I'm tired of running. G give me whatever that toughest assignment is. Give me that toughest assignment. And, uh, and, and, and then in that, I said, if that assignment is a tough one, give me the strength. If I get knocked down, give me the strength to get up and walk away. Or... If it's your will and I never get up, that means I'm no longer on this earth, then please provide for the family that you gave me. You know, uh, and that's a hard one for me because again, I, I like to grow old and I say this simply, as a black man, I want the pleasure of growing old. And I think 
what our society has to understand with all this killing going on in our society, the world, but especially America, when they look at a black man, when they see him, they should say, that black man want the pleasure of growing old. That, that is a beautiful, I mean, those 10, 11 words I just said can change lives and can change families, can change legacies and create wealth. If you allow me just to grow old, that's all I'm asking. Amen, amen. I, I tell you, I, I'm blessed and honored to be able to share this moment with you. Um, I've learned so much. I feel like uh, without a doubt, I'm walking away from this better than I was coming in. And that means so much to me. and it means that now I have a little bit more to pour into others. So, you know, I appreciate you. I know that, you know, as people watch this, they're going to learn. They're going to learn about you. They're going to learn about themselves. They're going to learn about what their journey is going to look like moving forward um, and, and be equipped with a little bit more to, to manage that journey and handle that journey. So without a doubt, I appreciate you, you know, more than you know. I appreciate your time. Uh, I, I'm excited. I'm excited to be able to share this with people and, you know, like like I said, I, I've been a fan, and, and now I'm even more of a fan. So you already know anything you need from me, I'm right here. Thank you, Jess. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. All right, we'll talk soon. <laughs>